Luke here in chapter one is writing an orderly account. His gospel is the most complete as far as beginning the gospel. How do you bring the Messiah into history? Luke is writing about all the things that have been fulfilled among us. He starts with the forerunner who will prepare the Messiah's way. And that fulfills the promises that God made in Isaiah 40, in Malachi chapter 4. And a forerunner doesn't just pop out of thin air and start forerunning. He has to be prepared to represent God, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And what that means is he's going to restore relationships in families and with God to the point where men know that God is God and that they submit to him because ultimately that's where life is. So then you have a question, how do you get a proper forerunner? And God solves that problem by restoring his parents' relationship with him. They are going to know God, and they're going to love him, so that they can impress their hearts on their son. It's not going to be just uh, an outward sort of a, a raising of a child, this is what you do, this is what you don't do. But it's going to be this communication of a heart and an attitude. This is who God is. And this is why you love God. This is why you serve God. God is worthy of everything. And this is your life. Now, in order to do this, God is going to hurt the parents deeply. And he's even going to rebuke them. But God knows exactly what he's doing. In order so that they will know God and love him. God humbles in order to bless. That's what we're looking at this morning. We're starting in verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, king of Judah, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, 
walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So here's where we start. The parents of the forerunner. And they're blessed in every way except one. They're exceptional. Zacharias is a priest of the order of Abijah. David organized the priests into 24 orders. And Zacharias is of the order of Abijah. That's the eighth order. Now, at this time, there's anywhere from 18 to 20,000 priests. And each order would minister twice a year in Jerusalem. Not every priest would come at every service, but there would be at least 50 priests on hand at any given time. And Zacharias lives in the hill country of Judah. He would have to make a special trip to be there when his order is on. And he did this. So he's a diligent priest. Elizabeth is of the family of Aaron, the high priest. And to be a priest and married to the daughter of a priest was considered a double blessing. And you notice they're both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments of the Lord, blameless. Now, you know, that doesn't happen by accident. It happens because you have this character and mindset that says, I want to please God with my life. And I am going to give my life to please God. Reminds me of the dedication that Ezra showed. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So that's what it requires. A mind and a heart that says what God wants, I want. I give myself utterly to that. That is my who I am. Now, you would think that there is every reason why God should bless this couple. Doesn't it make sense? Why wouldn't he bless? They're people after his own heart. But see, there's a sign that God has not blessed because Elizabeth is barren. Now, if children are a blessing from the Lord... What is it to not have children? Bad math says it's a curse. Nobody comes out and says it's a curse, but everybody hears, oh, childless. Ah. It's very close to getting cursed by God. Nobody says it. But that's what you think. Oh, man, that's tough. Now, that's a simplistic 
Look at things. You know what simplistic means? It means excessively simplified. Falsely simple. Because you're ignoring factors. And you don't know everything that's going on. So that it, you know, if you don't have kids, you're cursed by the Lord. That's too simple. And people kind of think like this. There's kind of an arrogance that says, well, you know, God's perfect. So whose fault is it? Some people will say, well, it's because you don't have enough faith. You know, that's a really tough stick to beat people with. Now, if you look quick at verse 25, where Elizabeth is talking about how the Lord is taking away my reproach among people, you see, she was aware of it. She understood that there's this unspoken awareness. Gee, that's something's wrong here. And, you know, people also offer simplistic solutions. Oh, well, you know, all you got to do is this and this. It's easy peasy. You know, that's not fair either. It's really humiliating to have your life reduced to a couple of easy solutions by people who don't have to go through what you're going through. It's really super easy to just throw out one, two, three. But they're not going through it. They don't know if it works. So this is a puzzle in the darkness. There are factors and details that no one knows anything about, least of all, Zacharias and Elizabeth. They don't know what is going on. It's hard to figure out how could we be so dedicated and then God's not blessing. And you don't know the answer to that. They've withheld nothing from God. But you know they're praying and they're not hearing from God. No answers. So they just have to live with it. So look at verse 8 with me. It says, So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, Zacharias literally won the lotto. Because with 18 to 20,000 priests, they had to decide somehow who does what. And they decided to make it fair. Every lot is cast into the lap, 
but it's every decision is from the Lord. That's in the book of Proverbs. So they said, well, let the Lord decide. And so everybody would participate in the lot who's ever there at any given time. Every day, duties have to be done. They would literally roll for it. And if you won it, you would be called rich. It would be the peak of your career. It would never be repeated. You could only do this once in your life. Can you imagine? You might serve your entire time as a priest and never be chosen. Nobody to blame because it's out of everybody's hands. There's no politics involved here. Does everybody get that? It's whatever God wants. And you realize again, Zacharias has been serving as a priest his whole life. Today it comes up. Today is a day of honor and being acknowledged before people. It's also kind of a, an acknowledgement from God. Hey, maybe I'm not so cursed. So, in goes Zacharias. Into the holy place. And as you go into the holy place, you have the lampstands. On the one side, you have the table of showbread on the other. And you walk up to this thick, heavy veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place, which is where the presence of God is, the holy of holies. And there's a golden altar that stands before that veil. And it belongs to the Holy of Holies. It's outside, but it properly belongs to it. And on this altar, Zacharias is to burn incense. And that is symbolic of prayer. And this smoke arises before God, a pleasing aroma all the prayers ascending to God, and everybody is outside in the temple now focusing on God. This is where people are giving thanks to God, and people are seeking the presence of God. They're offering up their prayers, intercessions, Asking for mercy. And then verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, 
and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So during this time of seeking, focusing on the Lord, God answers Zacharias' prayer. This angel appears right before him. And God breaks his silence that has lasted for 400 years. And the angel says, don't be afraid, Zacharias. Now what's more terrifying? To see an angel or to hear that the angel knows who you are? You know, the Bible calls them the watchers. They're always looking. How terrifying to find out. Yeah. He knows my name. And you know, he's never seen an angel. But he knows this is an angel. I am listening to an angel. Freak out. Angel says, don't be afraid. Too late, man. I'm way ahead of you. Your prayer is heard. Now, here's one of those factors, one of those details that nobody knows about. God did hear his prayer. He confirms it right here. God hears prayer even if it looks like he didn't. He does. And God is answering, yes, you're going to have a son. You're going to call him John, gift of God. You're going to have joy and gladness. Lots of people are going to have joy and gladness because he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, there's, there's a way to be great that's not great in the sight of the Lord because, you know, this is in the days of Herod king of Judea. And you know, that was his name. He was Herod the Great. But he was great because he made himself great. And he schemed. And he plotted. And he did politic things. And he got to be king. And he consolidated his power. And he made sure that he kept his power and he would oppose anybody who looked like a threat. He made himself great. He stayed great. But that's not greatness in the eyes of the Lord. Because Herod served himself. And that's a very tiny, despicable thing in the sight of the Lord. What is great in his eyes is a servant a faithful servant who knows him and who does 
all his will. That's the way he talks about Moses. A faithful servant in all my house. I can depend on Moses. Moses will do my will. Moses is great in the eyes of the Lord. This son is going to be great because he's going to be a servant of God. And he's going to accomplish the purpose that God has for his life before he's even born. God says he's going to be like this. So in a way, it doesn't matter if John wants to be, you know, an airplane pilot or an IT technician or anything that a guy would want to be. See, God says, no, I, I want him to serve me in this way. And he's going to be great because he's going to accept that. And he's going to serve me completely. That's why John is going to be great in the eyes of the Lord. And the angel goes on to say, he's not going to drink strong drink. He's not going to be drinking wine. Indirectly, he's saying that John is going to be a Nazarite from birth, dedicated to God. And because of that, there's certain things you don't do. You never cut your hair. That is a crown of glory to the Lord. You never drink strong drink. Anything that comes from grapes, you don't even touch grapes. You have nothing to do with that. You never touch a dead body. You have nothing to do with death. And you're set apart for the Lord. Now, part of this is that he is to come under no other influence than God. And see, when you drink, it lowers your control over yourself. It lowers your inhibitions. You would do things when you're a little bit tipsy or when you're smashed that you wouldn't do if you were sober. And so the Nazarite is only under the influence of God. And nothing else, no one else, he is for God only. And so the angel says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He will be under the influence of God before he comes out. Now, this is one of the indirect proofs that an unborn person is a person and not a clump of cells that are just protoplasm. That is a person in there. And see, 
If you kill a baby in the womb, you kill a person. And yes, a woman does have rights over her body, but she does not have rights over somebody else's body, even when that person's body is in her. That's why abortion is wrong. That is a person in there. We have to say that. Abortion is a sin against God, and it's a sin against man. This son is going to be the forerunner that God promised in Isaiah 40, Malachi 4, to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. He's not Elijah, but he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, which is really interesting, I think, because Elijah did miracles, didn't he? And when people think about Elijah, they think about miracles. But it's written of John that he performed no miracles. And people noticed. In the Gospel of John, it says that people were saying, though he performed no miracles, yet everything he said about this guy is true. And in fact, what John is going to do is something that Elijah didn't do. And this is why Elijah got really discouraged. Elijah called down fire from heaven that burned up an ox, wood, stone, water, and soil. There was a crater. Prophets of Baal couldn't do that. And everybody said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And the very next day, Queen Jezebel says, you know what? I'm going to kill you. And Elijah just runs into the wilderness. Because as what happens, your expectations are not met. And you don't know what to do about it. Because he thought, come on. Fire from heaven that destroyed everything? Baal couldn't do that? Does everybody get this? But no, they didn't. No, they didn't. He expected everybody would say, yes, God is God. He expected Jezebel would say, God is God. What are you going to do with that? She goes, I don't care. I'm still going to kill you. And he doesn't know what to do with that. So he runs away and he says, God, you're not doing very well for yourself here. As soon as they kill me, I'm the last one. Then what? And you know, in the way, he's kind of hacked off at God. Aren't I a prophet? Haven't I done everything you've wanted? What is this? And you know, isn't it interesting that God just gives them three things to do? No explanation. No, there, there, dear, I know how you feel. Nobody believes me either. Nothing. Just here, I want you to do three things. John performed no miracle. But he did turn the hearts of Israel toward God in a profound way. Do you know that when the Apostle Paul 
finally decided to do a work in Ephesus. He met men who were familiar with the baptism of John. Now, he's in the west part of present-day Turkey. And that's hundreds and hundreds of miles from Jerusalem, or let's say Judea, Palestine, where all this happened. And there's men there who were familiar with the baptism of John. Can you imagine what kind of an effect he had? Because he was utterly given over to God, and God used what he said and his person to powerfully affect and grip people and turn them to the Lord. That is the power of the Holy Spirit, to grip people's hearts. And all this means that the Lord is coming in the lifetime of Zacharias. All of those prophecies, it's all happening now, right now, and he's right in it. Did he ask for that? He wasn't looking for that, but he's doing it. He is going to be the father of that guy in Isaiah 40. But Zacharias doesn't believe the angel. We got a problem here. Look at verse 18. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple, but when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. You might think, boy, if I ever saw an angel, then I'd believe. And the answer to that one is, no, you wouldn't. Because here's Zacharias in the holy place, and there's an angel, and he goes, really? He talks back to an angel. And this means we got us a problem that Zacharias is saying to God, no, it's not going to happen. See, I'm an old guy now. I'm not going to have kids. She's not going to have kids. You're too late. I was waiting. I prayed. But where were you? Now, I don't know what to call that. Bitterness, frustration, mad at God. 
but I know it because I've done that too. I've said, where, where is God? Why doesn't he answer my prayers? What's going on? How come I don't hear from him? And you get angry at God, you get angry at people. Arr. Gee, and I always thought he was so nice, too. I mean, what, what's in his shoe? What's his big problem? Zacharias talks back to the angel. Now, the angel could scorch the earth if he got irritated. He says, I don't have to put up with this. But instead, he says, I'm Gabriel, and you don't believe me. Now you're not going to be able to talk until my words take place, because they're going to. And, you know, he doesn't sit down and try to reason this out with Zacharias and debate for a while till Zacharias says, well, you know, you're right. I guess I was kind of out of line. I think I got up on the wrong side of the bed today, and, you know, okay, fine. I see it your way now. God does not have to put up with our back talk at all. So the angel says, you're not talking. Now, God knew exactly what's going on in Zacharias's heart. God knew everything that's happening here, all the details that nobody knows about, all the factors that's going on. And see, God knows exactly how to deal with Zacharias to change his heart. Now, it's been a long process. They haven't had kids for who knows how many decades. Ongoing thing that keeps grinding, and there's no light at the end of the tunnel. But then God says, now we just need a little tap of the hammer. Bonk! And that will finish the job. So God does just like that. You can't talk. And suddenly, Zacharias is a believer and everything is cool. <laughs> You're Gabriel. You talked to Daniel 450 years ago. God's behind that veil. I'm lucky to be alive. Anything you want, you can have it. Because he can't talk. Do you see how there's a real huge shift in Zacharias right now? He knows he's out of line. And he knows that God is merciful because anything less than eternal punishment forever is mercy. And he realizes he's standing in mercy. So, life has become awkward and difficult for Zacharias. Everybody goes, I'm done praying. Are you done praying? I'm done praying. Where is he? He's supposed to come out, you know, and 
speak the blessing of Aaron over us from number six? What's, supposed to, what's he doing in there? How long does this take? The prayer meeting's over. And out comes Zacharias, and he goes, What? Is he putting us on? What is this? He can't talk. What happened? He was healthy when he went in there. What's going on? And they all start talking louder, if that's going to help. What is going on? He goes, what is he doing? Do you suppose he saw something in there? He can't talk. Life is awkward. He wants the salt. He can't get the salt. Pass me the green beans. Nobody's going to get it. Everything is awkward and difficult now. Everything is harder. He's got to go back and tell Elizabeth what's going on. He's got to tell her, we're going to get pregnant, you and me, mostly you. Can you imagine trying to convince somebody when you can't talk? What are you going to do? You're thinking about this, aren't you? It's like, whoa, how is she going to believe me when I can't even tell her? It was Gabriel. All right. But, miracle, Elizabeth does become pregnant. So look what it says now. In verse 24, Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. Now, that's an interesting attitude. She doesn't walk around, you know, go down to the Tesco and start talking with the ladies, oh, by the way, I'm going to be the mother of the forerunner. Zachariah saw Gabriel the other day in the temple. Yeah, the Gabriel, yeah. You know, she could do that, couldn't she? And she could say, well, you know what? The baby's name will be John. Oh, really? You're pregnant? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. No big deal. Easy peasy. You know, get back at everybody. This is her big moment to let everybody know, hey, we got this. But she's not doing that. She's doing the exact opposite. She's not going out. She hides herself. That means completely. And everybody's wondering. Hey, have you seen Elizabeth lately? Mm -mm. It's been weeks. I wonder what's going on. Nothing. Oh, well. I gotta admit, this reminds me of an interview that I read with Paul McCartney. 
And it was while the Beatles were in the studio for this long time. And the papers were starting to say, what happened to the Beatles? We don't even know where they are. They're not playing concerts. They're not doing anything. We don't, there's no news. And people were writing these articles like, are the Beatles washed up? We haven't heard from them. Did they just give up? Take off, you know? And see, at the time, they were recording what would be Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. And Paul McCartney said, yeah, we'd read these articles, and everybody's going, where are the Beatles? The Beatles are washed up. And he says, we just said, you just wait. Because they knew what they were working on was so different, it was going to change music. And they didn't really care. The people thought, oh, the Beatles are washed up. Oh, the Beatles are nothing. Because he says, just you wait. And see, this is what Elizabeth is doing. She doesn't need to let everybody know that she's okay. She's actually hiding herself because she knows Everybody is going to know this. There's no keeping it quiet. That's the whole idea. But for right now, for right now, when nobody knows, it's just her and God. And she gets up every day and she says, you're taking my reproach away. You're taking my reproach away. Nobody will ever, ever go at me ever again, like they've done for decades. They wrote me off. But you're taking away all of that shame. You're taking away all that hurt right now. I know it's going to be okay. <laughs> because you're, you're in my life. You're doing something. And you brought me to this place. Because now I don't care what anybody thinks about me. All I care about is what you think about me, and I already know what you think about me. And I'm so glad I'm not cursed. I'm so glad you accept me. I'm amazed that I would be a part of the fulfillment of your eternal plan. Every morning she gets up and she goes, wow, wow. So what God did was humble this couple and prepare them to be the parents. This is so important. Because humble means not proud, not haughty, not arrogant, not self-assertive. And see, when you humble somebody, you destroy their power, their independence, their prestige, what everybody else thinks about them. Can you imagine that's what God was doing? He says, the time has come. I'm going to destroy their power. I'm going to destroy their independence. 
I'm going to destroy how they look at themselves. Now, is that very nice? Do you suppose if God gave them the opportunity to choose, do you think they would choose to do that? What's the matter with having kids? We want kids. Is that reasonable? Like, don't do this to us. It's not nice. There are factors that nobody knows about. There's details that only God knows. God didn't ask for permission. Gee, do you think it's okay if I prepare you to be the parents of the forerunner? He's kind of like Gabriel. He doesn't have to put up with any back talk. He just says, we're going to do this. They pray, I say, yes, in my time, not your time. He's God. He gets to do that. So, they learned something about God. They learned, God does hear my prayer. God cares. God can answer my prayer greater than I ever prayed. I would just would have been happy with children. And he says, no, you're going to have the forerunner. And besides that, we'll write you up in the Bible. Everybody's going to know your name. How are we doing? More than I could ask for or think. We'll see. That's what it says. So now... They know God like they've never known him before. It's a night and day difference. Do you know that? They know that God really is gracious and compassionate. It's not just words on a page. It says in Isaiah chapter 30, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, like the light of seven days on the day the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise that he inflicted. You know, God does bruise his people. And then he binds them up because they get to know God. They get to know that God is God and everything he wants is good no matter what. No is as good as yes when it comes from God. And when it's wait, that's okay. So God is doing what pleases him, and that is good and acceptable and perfect. So both Zacharias and Elizabeth agree God knows what he's doing. God has a plan. God is gracious and merciful. And now they're prepared to raise a child. 
to be a servant of God. You know, all the good parenting books say that it's really good for the mother and the father to be on the same page when they're raising a child. You don't get two different opinions. You know, well, mom said this, and dad says this. It's like, who wins? And if a kid is really smart, he can pit mom against dad and end up getting what he wants, right? That's why mother and father have to be unified. We are a united front, kid. What God has put together, let no man separate, especially you. (laughs) Nice try. But see, John is going to get the same message from Zacharias and Elizabeth. Because they both know God now, and they love God, and they will be able to say, no, serving God, that is everything. That is everything. And he's worthy because he's good. Oh, my son, God is so good. And God can do whatever he wants to with your life. And whatever he wants is the best. I don't know quite how it's going to work out. But he will show you. This is your life. And you know, he's going to get it. God is going to get the forerunner that he wants. Isn't that amazing? Now, God is humbling you. I already know this without even asking. He is humbling you. Even if you don't know him yet. Even unbelievers are being humbled by God. That is the reason for all the difficulty that we go through. Without exception. In the case of somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus, that is to bring them to Jesus. Humbling comes before blessing. And that's what's going on. So all the people that's going on around you that are going through difficulties, do you realize God is doing that to bring them to Jesus? That's why you tell them about Jesus. That's going to make all of their suffering have purpose. And if they don't come to Jesus, all their suffering is for nothing. This is the only thing that will give their lives meaning and purpose and all that suffering. That's why you got to tell them about Jesus. It's not a waste of time. It isn't fairy tales or they're there, dear. It is the sober truth. God is working in your life. Now, realize Humbling can be this long process. Do you have things in your life that have just been going on and on? And it's like, (laughs) working on your life. And you feel like, hey, I'm done. I feel so done. Extra done. Can we stop now? 
But see, God is still working, and it's okay. Because even after you receive Jesus, God is still destroying your power. All of your gifts and all of your skill are for nothing. God doesn't need them. And you think, gee, I thought I was doing God a favor by joining his team. What I can contribute? Whoa. God says, no. You are dust, man, and I made the dust, too. That's awfully humbling to realize I add nothing to God. How about independence? God is destroying your independence. Can you do this? Do you have the skill and the adulthood? Uh Uh-uh. I need Jesus to get up in the morning. He destroys your independence. And then he destroys your prestige. What you think about yourself. Are you hot stuff? Uh Uh-uh. I'm so thankful I'm going to get saved. Martin Lloyd-Jones, at the end of his life, he knew he was dying, and he said to his biographer, Ian Murray, he says, you don't think about all the thousands of sermons you've preached and the books you've written and the trips you've made and all that stuff. It's all rubbish. He says, I am a sinner saved by grace. That's what I'm holding on to. So you look at your life and you say, nothing there. But Jesus becomes everything. If it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't make it. He is everything. So God is humbling you. And how you react to that is you say, yes, anything you want. Make me what you will and make me your servant. Let me do all your will. Can you say that? Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you do wound and you bruise. You even kill and you make alive and you heal. And we are so thankful that you do this. That you would take everything that's so important to us and really trash it so that we would only depend upon you and look to you for our sufficiency. And it's okay to do that. We do pray about those ongoing issues that we cannot deal with and They weaken us, and they're a continual pain that won't go away. 
we say, Lord, please deal with these issues. Please work them out for good. Please make me the person that you want me to be. And please let me do your will. Thank you for humbling me. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.